0: Welcome to this month's episode of Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. Today, I will be speaking to Jonathan Turner. Uh, Jonathan is the Senior Director of Corporate Compliance at Wright Medical Technology. Uh, Welcome, Jonathan.
1: Thanks, Mandy. I appreciate the opportunity to be here.
0: So today, we're going to be talking about something that you have a vast amount of experience in, and you've talked to many of our members over the years about it, and that's interviewing. So I thought that we could kind of relive some, some old stories, tell some new stories, and talk about some best practices. So to start, uh, let's talk about one of your very first interviews, what you remember about it, um, where you were in your career, how it went, uh, if you were nervous.
1: Sure. So uh, probably one of the earliest fraud cases that I worked on. I'd, I'd been in the industry for a couple of years uh, and I was retained uh, by a, uh, a publicly-traded entity that had received some letters aimed at the CEO, and the letters were, were alleging that the CEO had done some things wrong, and uh, and so put together a series of interviews to understand what was going on and to try and document whether the facts in the letters were true or false. Um, on the surface of this, the letters, uh, you know, made some sort of outrageous kinds of claims they, uh, they really seemed more personal than professional, and they contained some outrageous kinds of allegations. So at that point in my career, one of the, one of the mistakes that I think people tend to make is I let my bias get in the way of my investigation. Um, I judged the letters based on their content and their style instead of giving them maybe the credence that they really deserved. And So uh, one of the shocking things for me was when I started doing interviews, what I found was the information in the letters was corroborated. Um, I found witness after witness who had seen this kind of shocking and outrageous behavior uh, that was detailed in these letters. And so one of the things that I came away from there, and I I use this in interviewing to this day, is to remember that no matter how outrageous the claim or, or how crazy the scheme sounds at first, Uh, You always have to be open to the possibility that it's true or it's a reflection of truth. And so you really need to make sure that you're listening for people to tell you both the positive and the negative and not let your own biases get in the way. And uh, that was a lesson I learned early in my career, and I I apply apply it on a daily basis still.
0: I know a lot of times people get stuck talking to someone who just shuts down. So do you have a number one tip that you give for trying to get someone to talk who doesn't want to talk at all or is giving the yes or no answers or really terse answers? What would you suggest is the best thing to do?
1: Sure. So the, uh, the one thing I would say for, for almost everybody, the element that you can control is you. And the number one tip if somebody isn't giving you the answers that you quote unquote want is listening is listen to what they're saying. Let them take you places. If people feel like they're being heard, it encourages them to speak. And so one of the the flaws that sometimes gets exposed here is when a fraud examiner or an investigator asks questions with an answer in mind instead of letting the subject go where they will and letting that drive the interview. And I'm not saying you should just allow them to wander all over the place. But in the typical interview context, you ask a question. And if you don't get the answer you want, you get a little impatient, and you hurriedly ask another question and then another question. And then what you discover is that you're doing all the talking and none of the listening. And instead what you want to do is provide moments of silence. You want to pause. You want to wait. And, in fact, one of the most effective tools is you want to call the person out on their failure to cooperate. For example, I might say, where were you on Thursday, January 17th? And if I get no response, then after a period of time, what I might want to say is, is there a reason why you won't answer my question? Mm -hmm. In other words, don't move on. Deal with that point until it gets resolved. But the number one technique that I would say here, and I know this is going to sound basic to many, but the basics work 99% of the time. Listen to what they have to say.
0: So I took this from one of your slides in a presentation you did at a conference for us, And I wanted to pose the same question to you. What is the craziest thing anyone has ever told you in an interview?
1: Wow. um, I have a a long list of things that that people have (laughs) told me. Uh, You know, it's it's amazing. I I would guess in the crazy category, it's astounding how many people have confessed to things I didn't even know they had done. So, for example, maybe you're interviewing somebody about an expense account issue where you think they've double-dipped on an expense. And instead, what they confess to is a much more significant fraud scheme, because when they get questioned, what they're seeing is the totality of the fraud and not necessarily what you're aware of. Uh, I've had people admit to a variety of crimes. Uh, early in my career, I was doing the white-collar aspects of a uh, uh, an insurance fraud case, and involved arson. And in the course of this, I'm trying to figure out whether the person is correctly claiming the amount of money on his homeowner's claim. And, in fact, what he admits to is setting the fire that killed a family member.
0: Oh, um, wow. So there there
1: have been people that have made very astounding admissions. Um, but the key here is if you walk in with a predetermination of what they're going to say, you're only going to capture part of what they have to say. Yeah. If you walk in with questions, you're going to get more information, maybe, than you actually wanted.
0: Have you ever had to keep from laughing in an interview or keeping your cool or making sure that you kind of don't break character?
1: So, uh, so sometimes people's answers are completely ridiculous. Uh, I have had people tell me that the reason they did various things is the government implanted chips in their head. Um, <laughs> and, and other kinds of crazy sorts of responses. Um, I had one person who was absolutely convinced that their that their neighbors were spying on them and that they were from another planet. Um, and otherwise, these people seem normal. But but these particular aspects came out. And of course, if you're trying to get them to talk about a sensitive subject, and they some, come out with something outrageous, you can't let that derail the conversation. Uh, and every once in a while, you know, you will find somebody who pushes your button. It, it doesn't matter how experienced an interviewer is or, or what their particular background is. There are very, very skilled interviewees. People who are very accomplished fraudsters often know exactly how to answer questions. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, there are going to be times where they will attempt to turn the interview around on you and, and say things that involve uh, sexual or racial or violent responses to try and take control of the interview. Uh, Whether they really believe those things is really kind of secondary. If they allow you to get mad or they let you push buttons, then all of a sudden you're responding to them instead of interviewing them.
0: So I know this comes up quite a bit and I've heard differing views from people mostly because of bandwidth or staffing, but do you recommend interviewing someone alone or would you suggest to always have two people in the room?
1: So There's two answers here that I want to give. The first one is uh, is the classic, which I think is the one that is right almost 100% of the time, if not 100% of the time, and that's two people. You always want to have somebody who can focus on the questions and the respondent. I need to be able to ask questions, and I need to look at you, and I need to listen to your responses and be totally focused on that. Then I want a second person in the room whose job is to watch the entire exchange, to capture notes and to capture key points, and maybe to pick up things that I forget or little cues that I might miss. So if I don't have that second person in the room, I significantly limit my uh, my ability to do the interview. And then the second part of that answer, you know, the classic fraud triangle, one of the uh, elements is rationalization. And when organizations start talking about bandwidth or capability and using those to justify why they're only putting one person in that room, they're really rationalizing it. They're really saying, well, we know we need two, but we're not doing it, but, and they try and come up with an excuse. The fact of the matter is, if an interview is worth doing, it's worth doing right. And um, for those of you who have maybe been in some of my interviewing sessions before, you're going to have heard this theme from me, but it's a really consistent one. In order to walk into a room to do an interview, you need to be prepared, you need to be prepared, you need to be prepared. And when you think you're ready to go in, you double-check because too many people run into that interview room. Too many people are are worried about trying to get the maximum number of interviews done in a day, whereas uh, I've met some really astoundingly professional fraud examiners who know that it's about preparation, who know that it's about setting, location, and timing. And if that means that you do fewer interviews but get high-quality results, that makes all the difference in the world.
0: What is the worst mistake you've ever made in an interview, and were you able to rebound from it?
1: Sure. Um, um, Anybody who who conducts interviews is going to make mistakes. Um, uh, If you've done interviews for 30 years, you will make a mistake tomorrow. They they come up because uh, you didn't anticipate something or you just were a little bit off your game. Or let's face it, sometimes you're going to run into fraudsters who are just smarter than you are. Um, Some of the mistakes that I've made over time, uh, many of these are things that I've learned from, or at least I hope I've learned from. But uh, there's a temptation in an interview to come in and show the other guy just how much you know, all the facts that you have figured out. And, of course, the weakness in that is then they're really interviewing you. You're telling them what you've learned rather than learning any new information from them. One of the key mistakes that I made along those lines was I interviewed a subject about a fraud scheme and I was using documents to to show how this person was involved in the scheme and towards the end of it he confessed to a, a small level of involvement involving a relatively low amount of money and over the period of time more facts came out and what I realized is I never got into who all was involved and so while I did fully document one person's participation I missed two or three other people's participation I was so busy looking at what I could prove he had done, I wasn't asking about who else was involved. So that's one of these places that I've I've taken as a lesson and I've applied to, to the way I conduct interviews today.
0: So on the flip side of that, can you recall one of your proudest moments after interviewing someone where you really came out and you thought, you know, I did this, I did what I came here to do, I overcame a hurdle, or I got the information I needed?
1: I don't know that I have a proudest moment. I think I probably have a a category where I feel like I did my job appropriately. Um, And I guess what I would put in that category is I should walk out of the interview feeling like I learned everything there was to learn and feeling like the other side has learned as little as I could possibly give them. You know, if, if in the course of that interview I hear you make admissions and confessions to a variety of different things, It's not important for me to tell you that I got you. Not important for me to to trumpet my success. So I always consider my best interviews those where the bad guy walks away thinking, I just got away with that. Meanwhile, what I have is all the confessions or the documentation or the points in time where I can go tie them in and lock them down. So my most satisfying moments are people who walked out of an interview feeling like they got away with it, only discover that they were now in jail for five years, 10 years, 20 years on some various fraud-related charge.
0: Have you ever had to interview somebody you know?
1: Oh, certainly. Uh, and let's, let's remember there are categories of interviews, right? Yeah. So uh, we've got, uh, got process-level interviews. These are the people that you interview that are going to tell you about how things work. And they're very low likely to be involved, but very important to understanding process. After that, we're going to work up to witness interviews. Those are those people who saw some part of the fraud scheme. They may not even recognize it as a fraud scheme, but they saw something. Like they can talk about the delivery driver who always came and and left a package on a certain person's desk. Or uh, they can talk about how checks were prepared for a certain vendor. And then we're going to move up to participants. And, uh, obviously, those are going to be people who were knowingly involved at some level in the scheme. And then, finally, we're going to move up to perpetrators. Those are the people who organized and ran the scheme. So, uh, in, in the course of time, you will do interviews of people in various categories. Um, and I have, I have interviewed people on several levels that I knew. Uh, fortunately, I've never had to interview somebody on a perpetrator level that I knew. But uh, I've done interviews in the other categories that, uh, that were people that I knew.
0: And is that harder or easier, or you just look at it the same way?
1: So in my mind, when I walk into an interview room, uh, and I've used this analogy before in some of the courses I've done for the ACFC, um, I really make a kind of an analogy here to, uh, to walking out on stage. You're now playing a role. You have a job to do and a part to do. So it's no longer about you. It's about that room and that person in the room, um, and that's, so I guess kind of the answer is because there's a level of detachment when I'm doing those sorts of interviews, okay. I'm being very analytical about the body language and the and the word choice and the response, that the person themselves becomes irrelevant. It is the response, the answer, and the situation that becomes the focus. Uh, you know, I never want to tell you that it's going to be pleasant um, to be in those circumstances, but for me I think detachment is the, is the key to getting through it.
0: So I know we have a lot of younger people in our organization or even younger anti-fraud professionals out there, people entering the field. What would you say is the best piece of advice you can give someone when they're just starting out, when they might be nervous or they might even be scared of making a mistake?
1: So I have three pieces of advice that I would give the new participants. Uh, The first one is you are going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Long-standing, highly experienced fraud examiners make mistakes. So don't let the fear that you could make a mistake get in the way of doing a good job because most people will do a good job. If what you're looking for is an opportunity to practice, if you were taking piano lessons or you were uh, um, working out at a batting cage you know, what you would do is you would go to that environment and you would practice. You would sit at the piano and play. You would go to the batting cage and have a pitching machine shoot balls at you. Um, and you need to do the same sort of thing here. So if your job doesn't give you a good opportunity to do interviews and to build that skill set, there's a couple of tools that I recommend as, as ways to supplement it. Now, i to put a, a little disclaimer here. I give this advice in every interviewing course I, I do for the ACFE. Uh, I usually get people who tell me that it's ridiculous or it's crazy or or it won't work. But after every course, I get people who email me, a small number I grant you, but people who email me and tell me that they tried these two things and how much of a better interviewer they became by doing them. So uh, the two things that are out there, they both involve a grocery store. The first one is, in a grocery store, write down before you walk in five things you want to know. They can be random, like the nearest public library or a good Chinese restaurant. Five specific pieces of information. Walk up to a total stranger and ask that person the questions. The reason I suggest this exercise is most of what makes people nervous about interviewing is their own internal anxiety about asking the questions. And you have to ask people questions to a point where you get comfortable asking them. Now, why a grocery store? This is actually to make it a little bit harder because when you're in a grocery store, you're focused on what you're doing, you're looking to buy various products, and then you want to get out of the grocery store. So for somebody to successfully be able to stop you, engage you in conversation, and get you to answer questions means they're using their powers of persuasion in order to convince you to talk to them. And that's really interviewing. Mm -hmm. You know, the classic law and order scene where you're in a room and the police are holding you and you're under arrest, That's a different kind of interview than most fraud examiners experience. Most of us have to be able to reach out to somebody, talk to them, and get them to answer questions when we can't force them to answer questions. So to recap, tip number one, go to a grocery store with a list of five pieces of information and get people to answer them. And what you'll discover is the first few times is really difficult, and after that, it gets easier and easier to the point where you can walk into any grocery store at any point, walk up to a stranger, ask them questions, and get them to answer you. When you get to that place, you're set to be a very effective interviewer. The, uh, the second technique that I would apply is, is very similar. It's just got a twist to it. This time, instead of asking for specific pieces of information, go in and, ask for, and, and have a clock running, in other words, a timer. And so, the first goal is to get somebody to talk to you for two minutes. The second one is four, the third one is six, the fourth one is eight, and the fifth one is ten. And again, the same skill set, but now instead of looking for specific pieces of information, this is a listening exercise. You have to ask them a question, listen to their response, and let that drive you to the next question so that you can keep that person, again, stop there in the grocery store, Talking to you for increasingly long lengths of time, and what I'm going to suggest to you is if you can get somebody to stop in a grocery store and talk to you for 10 minutes, you have the powers of persuasion to be a very effective interviewer.
0: Now, have you ever done this exercise?
1: <laughs> and that's that's actually a really common response at, at ACFS seminars. Is oh, I don't I don't need to do that. But interestingly enough, the people who do it report back. I get emails all the time that talk about how that was the tool that let them really break a case or become more confident in investigation. So, you know, if that's not the tool that works for you, please find one that that helps you get your confidence level up. And for those of you who've done years and years of investigation, who've done lots of interviews, everything that you do that adds a new tool to the toolbox makes you more successful. So if you think to yourself that would be easy, go try it. See if it is. If it is, you've got those skills mastered. But if it's not as easy as it sounds, then maybe there's still an opportunity to practice.
0: Well, this is wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Glad to be here, Mandy. and I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to participate. Enjoy working with the ACFE.
0: This is Mandy Moody with the ACFE, and thank you for joining us for this month's Fraud Talk.